Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and blood and spoke to God's people. So now we bow before you, Lord Jesus, King Jesus, our Savior. And we say, speak to us. For the shepherd knows the sheep and the sheep can hear the voice of their shepherd. Pour out your Holy Spirit. Open our ears to your word that we might hear from you directly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Appreciate that. Well, for the next five weeks, I want to talk with you about the Holy Spirit. I want to study with you Romans chapter 8. One of the greatest chapters of the Bible. In Romans chapter 8, St. Paul says the Spirit indwells us, lives inside of us, like your life is a house. And in chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And so I want to think of the Holy Spirit as the resident agent of life and peace. You may not think about Romans 8 when you think about Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's mentioned 21 times. The the resident agent of life and peace, 21 times in chapter 8. So my question as we move out of Easter and into uh, this next season, how do we live with the Spirit? I want to know that. Not only do I want to know that, I actually want to do that. I mean, that's my prayer for myself. And that's my prayer for you as well, that we together will learn something and begin to do something about the Holy Spirit so that we can live with a resident agent of life and peace here in our city. So, St. Paul begins with the mind. And we're going to begin there as well. Let's turn our Bibles open to Romans 8, verses 1 through 9. Uh, And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read aloud together. As I say, Paul begins with the mind because the mind is where you and I so often get stuck in our shame. Talk about shame today. All right, uh, turn to Romans 8, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, page 918 of the Pew Bible. Uh, We're going to read aloud together, reinforce this, not only silently in our heads, but auditory. We're going to use another sense uh, because that's how we learn And when I'm done reading, we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the spirit. 
since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Wow. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the unbelievable claim that God has done something in Jesus Christ that confronts shame. Takes it away completely. Condemnation? None. Shame? Gone. And I think all of us could agree that that's good, right? No matter where you are in your faith journey, whether you have, think you have no faith whatsoever, we can all agree that anything that helps us to quit shaming ourselves and quit putting other people in place of shame is actually a really good thing. And I want to tell you, if you don't know him yet, this is what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. Wherever he goes, all day long in the Gospels, he is confronting shame. He says just none of that. And actually, one of the stories you may remember, Jesus tells, confronts it directly. It's the story of a young man who leaves his father's house, takes the inheritance with him, goes into the distant country, squanders that inheritance in loose living, ends up just in a pigsty in the house of pigs, hungry. It's a prodigal son, you know the story. And, and he says, what does he say? He says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's the cry of shame. This is the way Jesus tells the story. That's the cry of shame. I'm no longer worthy. What heartbreaking words. Now, they say that guilt is uh, telling yourself, I did a bad thing, but shame is telling yourself, I am a bad thing. Shame says, I'm worthless, I'm not enough, I'm bad, I don't matter, I'm less than, I don't belong. And it's not just a message that we tell ourselves, it's actually something that drives our behavior. <clears throat> shame drives what we do. So we start to hide, we pretend, we withdraw, we judge others, shame. But the story of this young man that Jesus tells has a father that confronts shame. There's a father in the story who confronts shame. The young man comes back. He says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. And boom, the father interrupts the script. He breaks it. And what does he do? In the story, he takes the son's shame upon himself in order to confer upon the son his own glory. This is an honorable father. And when the son of shame comes back and all the villagers are looking and they're going, there he comes, a scoundrel. The father hitches up his robe, which is something we're told in that culture never happened because that was a shameful gesture to re re reveal your bare legs and, and to run. Another thing that a person of dignity wouldn't do in that culture, but the father does it. He takes the shame of the son and then he puts his arms around and the robe around and the ring on the finger. He confers onto the son his honor. This is the story Jesus is telling. Well, Paul here in the chapter that you just read, in chapter 8, seems to be telling the same story. Perhaps he's even remembering uh, through word of mouth what Jesus had said about this young man. Because in the text here, he's saying that God has somehow come running for you. He has taken on sinful flesh. He's taken on our shame. It says in verse Three and, and we cry out, I am not worthy. But he says, oh, oh, oh. he interrupts us mid-sentence and says, no condemnation for you. No talk of shame for you. He clothes us in his spirit. And then verse nine says, he dwells. His spirit dwells inside of us. Brings us into that house. 
this child of mine was lost, but now he's found. Now she's found. Uh, was dead, but now is alive again. It's an Easter story. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, so that's the argument that Paul's making. Let me step back from that for a second and just go a little bit deeper and ask you a question. Why is it so easy to get shame into your head, but so hard to get it out of your head? Right? You agree with the premise of the question? It's, that's true for me. But why? Why is it so hard to get, easy to get shame in, but so hard to get shame out? Here's my theory, armchair quarterback. I think it's because there's a disconnect be- between objective reality and our own subjective experience. Okay, oops, I did my English major thing again. Let me step back from that. I know that's, I'm going to geek on you just a little bit today. Objective reality, subjective experience, what do I mean by that? What's the difference? So open your dictionary. You find the objective is that which is based on fact. It's the way things are. The subjective is that which is based on feelings. It's the way I experience reality. It's, uh, objective is about the way things are. The subjective is about the way I experience the way things are. Okay? So uh, objective um, give me an example of that. Okay, the Red Sox are the b- best team in baseball. No. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're going to take that sitting down? No. Okay, so, but, the, but subjective, there are some people who root for the Yankees. I don't know why. You probably don't know why either, but we can agree on that. Let me try another one because I, I, I'm, I'm losing you here. <laughs> Objective, wheat is healthy and good for you. Subjective, some of us break out in hives when we eat it, right? So, so, uh, and that's because there's another objective reality at work, and that is that some of us are allergic uh, to wheat. But if someone comes up to you and says, hey, wheat is good, uh, eat wheat, uh, and then you do, you have this, your own subjective experience of that, you break out into hives. And, and so uh, just telling someone that something is objectively true doesn't necessarily give you the desired subjective experience. And we can say to one another, here's where I'm going with this, no shame. Don't do shame. Don't do it for yourself. Don't do it for someone else. You can say that, but what we're doing is we're talking about a subjective experience. My question is, what's the objective reality behind that? What's the objective reality that supports the subjective experience of no shame? The fact beneath the feeling. Because I think we've kind of lost connection with that in our culture today. We say to each other, you should feel no shame, but how do we know we should feel no shame? Who gets to say? I was listening to NPR last week, and I heard a singer-songwriter being interviewed, and she says this at one point, just caught my ear. If you're looking for validation in your friend group, you'll never find it. Isn't that interesting? She says, if you're looking for validation in your friend group, you'll never find it. So she's raising the question of who gets to tell you you're all good or you're not good? If it's your friends or your parents or your culture, people around you, people at work, be very careful about that. It's very dangerous to give other people the power to render a verdict like that over your life. And so here the problem is, we don't want shame. We want to say to each other, just don't feel shame. But you can't just say, don't feel shame. 
right? I mean, who, who gets to say, can I do that for myself? I, you want me to get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, George, you're awesome. George, you are awesome. Say it three times. Turn it into a mantra. Say it again and again. Here's my problem. The guy who's saying it to me, I don't find him very convincing because <laughs> he's the character in question. So, I mean, can we really say this to ourselves? I, it doesn't work for me. Can we do it for others? Well, it's good that we try to do it for others, but the singer-songwriter is saying, be very, very careful. You, you don't give other people that power in your life. Can science do it? Well, if all we have is naturalistic evolution, then what's the difference in value between myself and the mosquito or the mold on my cheese? Right? I mean, if we're nothing but the product of chance mutation and natural selection, then what makes me more worthy or valuable than the mosquito? And some people actually in our culture have, have been forced to say, well, there is nothing. And I don't think that's going to help the shame problem. Even if we have an objective reality beneath and behind our claim that we don't want to feel shame, even if we do, can we really demand a subjective response of one another or ourselves? Remember, shame is an emotion. And we've learned that you can't just tell yourself or somebody else to experience or stop experiencing a certain emotion. It just doesn't work. You know, like, it's death. Come on, stop being sad. Right? Or it's just a Spanish midterm. Stop the anxiety right now. Does that work? No. See, once you get shame in your head, it's very hard to get it out. This is what I'm saying. It's like the spring ants in Seattle, right? One or two come out and you go bump, 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 bump. But then they, you know, they just keep coming. They keep coming. And it's, for me, at least, it's the same with my sense of shame. But St. Paul says, no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And he says, set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. Okay, so here's the claim the apostle's making. He says that because God addresses shame objectively and subjectively. Now I want you to see where I'm going with this. God acts doubly. He addresses our shame objectively and subjectively. You notice this in the little headline, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There are two parts to that. And this is verse two. If you want to, it'd be helpful to look at the text at this point. Verse two, Paul talks about the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. He says, Jesus and spirit, objective and subjective. The Jesus of history and the spirit at work in your life. Those two things are both essential if you're going to push shame out of your mind. Now, I'm going to work into this a little bit further, but just catch the outline, the flow. Here's my English major geek again. There's a, there's, a, there's a flow, a logic to his argument. So in verse 1, it's kind of an emotional reaction in the Greek as well as English. It's just an explanation, exclamation. No condemnation. That's verse 1. Now, if you want to catch the flow of the argument, look for the word for. F-O-R. Look at the text. It comes up. It, it, this is how Paul holds the argument together. No condemnation. Why? Well, for Spirit and Jesus, verse 2, subjective and objective, that's the headline together. And then double click on that, and he's going to tell, let me be more specific about Spirit and Jesus. I'll take Jesus first. And so verse 3, then there's a whole little, I think it should be its own pet paragraph, that starts with the word for. For, here's what God has done by sending his son. And then verse 5, now we're getting to the Spirit part. There's another for, and here's the other half of the headline. Those who live according to the Spirit. In other words, no condemnation. Why? Well, Jesus and Spirit... What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus, God has sent his only son, and Spirit, God has sent his Holy Spirit to set your mind on life and peace. All right. I know this is complicated. 
So let me give you two pictures. First a verbal picture, and then I'm going to put some images on the screen. Here's the verbal picture. I want you to imagine a country road. This is an actual country road just outside of Boston. You're driving on a country road, and you see on the right side of that road a little white clabbered church. And then you see on the left side of the road, exactly across the street from that church, a little white clabbered church. Okay? And you look at the sign, and the one says, capital U, Unitarian. And you look at the sign across the street, and the other one says, capital T, Trinitarian. This is an actual, this is an actual street and two churches. I used to drive this street uh, very frequently when I lived in Boston. Yes, I did live in Boston. Go Sox. And I would <clears throat> drive between these two buildings like I'm driving like between a conversation that's happened. I don't know, you know the history of centuries of these two churches. Everything's old in Boston. But it's like the conversation continues. I could hear them like shouting at each other, Unitarian, no, Trinitarian, no, Unitarian, right? <clears throat> so here's what's at stake in that conversation. I asked the uh, elders, your, your elders, uh, a couple of weeks ago this question. Are you a Unitarian or are you a Trinitarian? Here's what's at stake in this. Let me show you a picture. This is the Unitarian system. Basically, God is one. There's, there's no differentiation among persons in the Trinity. There's just Father, Son, Spirit, or just, no, just one God at all. And in this picture, the believer, me, I stand immediately before God. And I use the word immediately in a literal sense, meaning immediate, no mediator between me and God. I stand here before God on my own merits, my own character, my own behavior, my own life. What I want to suggest to you is that is a highly insecure model. Why? Because of the possibility of condemnation. If it just so happens that this God is perfectly good and perfectly just, then my intuitions that when things are not good, they experience the corrective of justice means I'll always be insecure. I'll never know what justice will do to me. I'll always be liable to someone's word of condemnation in this model because it's just me and God. Now, that's the Unitarian picture. I want to say to you, in this reality, there's no, there's no objective reality there that confronts the Unitarian's subjective sense of shame. Their emotions are vulnerable to shame. Now, I, I would also say this is, is true for someone, for what I'd call the functional Unitarian. Maybe that person who says the creed at church, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But for them, that just really names for the same thing. It's all kind of interchangeable, Father, Son, Spirit. I don't really know what they do or who they are. That, that's a functional Unitarianism. It's also true for the agnostic or the, the modern secularist. Because whatever they believe is up there at the top end of the arrow, whatever it is, they stand on their own before whatever reality is out there. And so they have nothing that would, in the objective reality that would confront their subjective experience of shame. All right, now here's a second image. This is the Trinitarian picture. This is what Paul is getting at. Now, he wouldn't use the word Trinitarian, but if you read carefully, you'll see he's working with, with this framework. For example, in verse 9, you'll see he, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God and also as the Spirit of Christ. So you have God the Father, you have God the Spirit, you have God Jesus Christ the Son. The Trinitarian picture. In this picture, the believer, I am not standing immediately before the Father, that meaning without a mediator. I'm spe speaking, I'm standing immediately before the Father with a mediator, uh, with a vicar. So I have a vicarious relationship 
with the Father through another person. That's what vicarious means. So Jesus here, the Son, has become my vicar or representative or mediator between myself and God. Now Paul's writing about this in the text. So he says, God has done something in objective reality that makes a difference for us. Verse 3, end of that verse, God condemned sin in the flesh. Follow me here. It's worth getting this. Verse 3, yes, there is condemnation. Yes, God does condemn. He condemns. Your intuitions that justice is real, where there is something wrong in the world, this is a God who will correct it one way or another. He condemns sin. That's what the text says. But he doesn't condemn you. He doesn't condemn me. He condemns sin where? In the Son. The Son is taken on in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did what this father in the story that Jesus tells does. He ran into the distant country. He took on our shame so that he can give us his honor. Paul write earlier, while we were yet sinners. God justifies the ungodly, he says earlier. This is grace. I mean, this is unthinkable. This is a violation of every religious principle that the world has ever known. This grace. And this is the heart of history. This is, this is the picture. This is the good news. There's no condemnation. There is a new objective reality now after what God has done in Jesus Christ. And there's a, a new subjective experience as well. And here's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us an, the objective experience that is consistent with objective reality. See what I'm saying? That's what really Paul says. So verse 6 he says, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now God wipes out condemnation objectively in human history through what he does in Jesus. But then subjectively God wipes it out also in the individual believer. He wipes out the experience of condemnation through his Holy Spirit, the resident agent of life and peace binds the believer to Jesus. That's, that's his role. That's why I, I've got the Spirit between the Son and me. His role is to bind me in union with the Son. So that, as Paul says, I can literally be in Christ. And, and then to take what is of the sons and put it into me so that the Spirit is in me. The Spirit of the Son is now in me. This is why Paul elsewhere will talk about uh, putting inside of us life and peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control. This is just the character of Jesus that the Spirit is putting inside of me. It's bleeding out in my life more and more. So Jesus says of the Spirit in John 16, 14, he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. What belongs to me, the Holy Spirit will take and make it actually your property as well. So we have Jesus at the heart of history, objective, and we have the Holy Spirit in the heart of our lives, applying that objective reality subjectively to my life so that what is true in history becomes increasingly true in my life as well. You see that? So here's the question. Are you a Unitarian or are you a Trinitarian? I'm not talking about what league you affiliate with. I'm talking about the way you live your life. I was asking the elders, now I'm asking you and me. Do you have an objective reality that confronts your subjective experience of shame? Or do you have the spirit of Christ binding you to Jesus and convincing you that everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you? 
is your destiny, is your legacy, is your reality. This is what Paul is getting at. And here's the point. It's possible to live a no condemnation life. It really is. It's possible to live a no condemnation life. Not because you told yourself that shame is really unhelpful, because how many times have you already tried that? Not because you're trying to convince yourself that you're worthy. Oh, George, you're awesome. Not working for me. But because you stand by faith in Christ. He stands in your shame so that you can now stand in his honor. This is what faith is all about. So objective reality. Remember economics. I failed my second economics course, but no shame. Come on, <laughs> you econo economists. But, but, but you probably didn't. And here's, here's what you know from economics. The value of something is determined by the price the highest bidder is willing to pay. Right? The value of something is determined by the, high, the price that the highest bidder is willing to pay. Let me ask you a question. What are you worth? What has God paid for you? Peter says, you were bought not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. He gave his life for you. What more could he give? Gosh, this is a love that can withstand any degree of shame. There's no shame in the world that can stand up to love like that. There's none. That's perfect love. You're worth God's son. The wealth of Elon Musk is nothing compared to the precious blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You are objectively worthy. Can we agree on that? And we got to treat ourselves that way. We need to start treating each other that way. That's reality. But here's what I know. I don't always live consistent with reality. The whole world can be just perfectly well-ordered and I can still be a chaotic mess. So I, I still need a subjective agent to apply that objective reality into my life. And this is where the Holy Spirit comes. He's the resident agent of life and peace. The Spirit means, Greek and Hebrew, breath or wind. So the Holy Spirit is the breath of Jesus blowing into our lives, personally, individually, just for you. The Swiss theologian Karl Barth says, in the Holy Spirit, God has no longer lives in a historical or heavenly remoteness, but approaches and takes possession of me. The Holy Spirit, God has approached to take possession of you. To occupy you. He's not trying to condemn you. He's trying to affirm you. He's trying to resource you. He's trying to honor you as his beloved daughter, as his beloved son. He's pushing back on your shame and putting you in this place of honor. Trying to get you in this place where this eternal dialogue between the father and the son, this conversation that's been happening for all of eternity, a conversation of love and delight and mutual service and beauty and laughter. The Holy Spirit's just trying to get you in there, caught up between them, so that everything that the father says to the son, you understand the father is saying to you, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is why I put the title, uh, Rebooting Your Mind. You need to reboot your mind. While I was writing this message, I watched my power indicator on my laptop drop down. I had a driver issue or something, and it went from you know 80% to 4% to 3%. And I go, oh my gosh, save. Um, boom, the screen goes blank. I have to do this um, hard reset. I had to reboot it, and then you know the software issues. What do they resolve? 
But here's the thing. The code that is driving the program of your mind is glitchy, buggy. I have a computer science uh, engineer in my family. It's looping. It crashes. You need the Holy Spirit to come and rewrite that code. It's interesting. It took us 2,000 years to figure it out. But you scientists are now talking about neuroplasticity which is the idea that it is possible to change the way your brain is physically functioning by thinking differently. One of the laws of neuroplasticity is called Hebb's Law, which talks about your neurons, and they say what fires together wires together. You start thinking in a new way, it actually changes your brain structure. This doesn't happen instantly. This is happening in pattern over time. But what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit does that as you allow him to do that. It's not just a biological issue. This is a spiritual opportunity. All right, so here's the takeaway today. Here's what I want to challenge me to do and and you as well. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's what Paul says here. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Write that on the palm of your hand if you don't have a piece of paper. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Through God's objective and subjective grace, you can live a no-condemnation life. To set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Because there is no condemnation. St. Paul ends his uh, reflection here with the word dwell. He says the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And he uses the verb form of the Greek word for house. Meaning the Holy Spirit's making his home in you. And And that's a metaphysical reality I don't claim to understand. But here Paul says it. The Holy Spirit's making his home. In you, He's making a new home for you as well. He's creating new space for your head and for your heart to live in. This is where the life of Jesus and the peace of Jesus begins to emerge. So I want to ask you this week to meditate on this question. What would it look like for the spirit of that father, the one who left his home to sweep up the child in a distant country, who took on our, his shame so that he could give him his honor, What would it look like to let the spirit of that father make his home in you? I mean, to rewire your thinking, your feeling. What would you have to give up? What would you have to learn? What would you have to do and start practicing? This is, friends, this is not just about self-esteem. Because when you can see yourself the way God sees you, you're going to start to see other people differently as well. This is not just going to change your individual house. This is going to change our shared house. And I wanted to say, Jennifer is right, these are challenging times uh, for those of us who are in the church. But they're very exciting times. Nothing is more important or hopeful right now than the promise and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our midst. So I know this isn't everything. This is a place to begin, though. And over the next five weeks, I'm looking forward to sharing with you and learning with you how together we can let the Holy Spirit lead. All right, you ready for that? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you that the truth of our lives is no condemnation. We've already confessed the ways in which we have stumbled into condemnation. We pray that you'll refocus us by the objective reality and help us, convince us by the subjective power of the Holy Spirit that what you say about us is true is actually what we believe about ourselves and the the reality out of which we live personally. We're going to need your help with this. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the rabbi, you're the, you're the teacher. Thank you that you're the good shepherd. Thank you that you haven't left us alone as your sheep. 
that through your spirit, you are going to teach us how to follow and you're going to lead us. And you're going to make us to lie down in green pastures. You're going to lead us beside still waters. And we are going to live a new life individually and corporately together because of the power and presence of the resident agent of life and peace. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.